Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The second Primordial Album Journey's End, which was recorded in 1997, almost didn't really happen. In fact, the band, you could say, almost broke up before we even got there, but somehow managed to drag ourselves to the point of making it with really little more than half an album prepared. This is the story of that record and how it came to pass. Imrama, the debut album, came out in 1995 on Cacophonous Records. Um, And it was really quite a strange experience because we didn't really play any gigs for it. You were kind of, well, you weren't kind of. We were in Ireland, we were isolated, we're off on the periphery, the edge of Europe and the whole Ryanair phenomenon, even though when you look, it states that Ryanair began sometime in the 1980s. I wasn't really aware of it until maybe 1996 or 1997 even. And there was cheap flights, but there wasn't really, you know, there weren't booking agencies knocking down our door trying to um, book us. There'd been talk of a couple of gigs around the first album. We're supposed to play in Paris. We're supposed to play one gig in Germany. Um, But transferring money all that kind of thing, trying to pay for flights. It seemed like an insurmountable obstacle to climb back then in 1994, 1995. Despite, in many ways, society being um, easier, things like that were most, without doubt, much more difficult. So we hadn't played anywhere for the album in Rama. We'd lost our drummer, um, Paul's brother. He had um, disappeared somewhere in 1997. And we also had moved from Cacophonous to Misanthropy. It's quite complicated because the record contract we signed for Imrama with Cacophonous was a 40 to 50 page, um, mind-bendingly complicated piece of um, antiquated, archaic English that I tried to read one day on the train um, going home and just couldn't really fathom it. And this is what happens to bands is they're young, They're 17, 18, 19, and they sign a record contract because they're just excited. And they sign away their futures because they don't really understand what's going on. Which 
we actually did with that very first album for Cacophonous. But um, through some arrangement between Tiziana, who ran Misanthropy Records, and Neil, who ran Cacophonous, we were just allowed to move. The contract was nulled and void. Stuff which we don't really understand um, quite how it happened, happened. Um, for some reason, Tiziana was starting to, you know, the open my Santhropy records. She'd moved to Suffolk, um, just outside London. And I think was just looking for bands and seemed to sort of like our debut. Like I said, it was all pretty naive. It was pretty innocent in many ways. We hadn't been on tour. We were, if maybe if we were in Germany or Holland. It's one of the things I say or said in the beginning of the podcast or I say to people in interviews is that um, if you are from, let's say, Utrecht or just pick Maastricht, you're a thrash band in 1991 from Maastricht in Holland. You can drive across the border very easily and play. You can trade a gig with a band who are um, playing their local um, bar or the local youth hall or something like this. And you could travel around and trade gigs with people. It was much easier if you were from the European mainland. If you're from a kind of peripheral country like Ireland that required flying, um, things are a little bit difficult, much more difficult to sort out, to fix flights. Um Paying four or five hundred euro, let's say three hundred pounds for a flight back then is equivalent of paying like eight, nine hundred euro for a flight now, maybe seven hundred euro. Although things are moving to back towards those kind of costs, um, the Ryan Rare phenomenon hadn't really come into pass yet. We began to play some shows in Europe in 1999. We played in Vakken in 1998 off the back of Journey's End. But as of this time, it was all pretty naive. Um, we barely understood what monitors were. We played a couple of pub gigs, that kind of thing. But Journey's End, the second album, it was recommended to us that we should go to... We'd been to mix... Imrama in Academy Studios. The very first of mix of, of Imrama, which exists somewhere on a cassette that should be released for some people who are interested to hear, um, was kind of rejected by Cacophonous. They kind of went, what the fuck have you guys done? We'd recorded the album on two eight tracks on a half inch reel. And we'd, um, the story is way back in Agitators Anonymous episode one or two, me and Nihil from Cacophonous had taken it, hired a half inch machine, gone up on the train from London to Leeds, carrying this thing around with our two leather trench coats and leather pants, um, you know, pushing it on its little wheels through the Saturday night mayhem of um, Leeds with people filing out of sports bars and stuff ready to kick our asses. Um, like I said, go back and maybe find that in one of the very, very first few podcasts because it's an utterly ridiculous situation. But we were then a little bit familiar with um, Academy Studios. It was where, of course, Academy was where Paris lost, where Madame Bride and Anathema had gone. So, of course, those bands were our, um, I'm not going to say quite our peers, but certainly we felt a lot of kind of kinship with those guys, even though those bands had um, had a massive head start of a year or two on us with uh, much bigger albums and all that kind of stuff. There was, I suppose, a sort of musical lineage between those guys and where we were in Ireland. This kind of miserableism, let's call it that. Um, and so when it was said to us, well, you should go to um, you should go to Academy Studios. Now, the old Academy Studios in Bradford was kind of like a two floor, um, like a normal building in the middle of a, a suburban housing estate. Um, pretty grim, to be honest. And you all stayed in a small little room and bunk beds with no windows. Um, and you had the downstairs recording area, which was like this sort of ghostly, mystical sort of space that you sort of had the feeling that some some ill 
history had happened there. Something da- something dastardly had happened in his room and it had a sort of very particular atmosphere. Um, it was a kind of shabby down at heel place overall, but it was brilliant. It had an incredibly magical sort of atmosphere. And Mags, of course, we had got to know from mixing him Rama. Um, an excellent person who had a really big impact. And now when I listen to Journey's End, when I play Journey's End, it's not often I play primordial albums, but when I play the song Journey's End, I'm still uh, caught off guard by how big and powerful it sounds. But what was the... What were we really doing? We were trying to write songs after Imrama that weren't really going anywhere. Imrama had sort of given us a certain identity. But if you listen to Imrama, it's all over the place. Um, the opening song, Fui Larsa, is like a rock song. We've got a song like The Fires is black metal and The Darkest Flame has got sort of trouble, candlemass, doom elements in it. Um, it's kind of all over the place, even though it has a particular identity. And, and in retrospect, I don't mind the production on it for what it is at all. But Journey's End, we began to try and broaden out the sound to make it more epic. But of course, losing a drummer in the middle of it... Um, was kind of complicated. There are some rehearsals knocking around of our early attempts at Graven Idol. I think Graven Idol was the first song that we were trying to uh, write. And it has a sort of, again, Graven Idol is a very strange song. Um, it's the first song on Journey's End. It's quite a complicated song with a mishmash of um, tempos and riffs. And this is one of the strange things about Journey's End that makes it a bit kind of magical, I think, is that if you take a song like Autumn's Blaze or Grave and Idol, there's no choruses. There's no chorus in Journey's End. All of the songs are almost all full chords. There's very little... There's little heavy metal riffing almost in the whole record. It's kind of um, astonishing, really, when I think when I look back at it. I mean, there are only really four metal songs on it. Um, it's such a strange record. I think it has, it's probably the strangest record Primordial ever made. In a way, it was, we were the most unprepared. We went over there with a couple of ideas of songs that weren't really, really songs. So I'll, I'll kind of go through them and kind of explain the general oddness of this record. Um, I, th- I do th- look back and think that it's a beautiful record. I think it's a quite, I think we had our hard edges sort of slightly honed that maybe we had from our black metal, um, the black metal era that we'd come from. But it does have a sort of beauty to it, um, if that's the right word, a sort of romantic, nostalgic, kind of wistful, melancholic beauty to it. If we look at Grave and Idol, I mean, Grave and Idol, I suppose, um, the idea was that I was going to write some sort of Edgar Allan Poe-esque sort of um, Victorian poem who wasn't necessarily meant to be gothic, but I suppose in the truest sense of the word gothic, that's quite what it was. And it ended up being this sort of um, graven love song. And it's a very strange song, the strange timings and the ding, the bass bits at the end. I was about to uh, sing the bass bit. Such strange chords and strange notes in the bit in the middle. Um it sort of doesn't make an awful lot of sense when you put them together. And we did play it live a couple of years ago and it sort of went down like the proverbial lead balloon and we thought, well, maybe we shouldn't, <laughs> we should leave that song alone. But it's still a cool song. I still really, really like it. It's got a, the vocals I was trying to do a sort of Carl McCoy and Nephilim thing, definitely influenced by Goth, by Sisters of Mercy and that kind of stuff. Um, it's, an, it's an odd and interesting song that maybe now when I look back could have made 
um, two songs or three songs. In fact, it probably should have made a couple of songs. But for some reason, after that first album, we were pushing out the boat with, um, not knowingly, but having slightly more complicated time signatures, complicated um, riffs. And Mags, one of the things he sat down and he said, look, you can't play these shitty guitars. You've got to use proper guitars. And one of the things he most definitely did was to was to pay, peel back all of the distortion and the gain and I suppose the black metal elements to the tone. Uh, this was kind of his way. And what he would do is he would record two um, different guitar tones quite far apart, less pedals the, mm, the better, and then two sort of semi-distorted guitars and blend them in, which gives it this, when you listen to the opening song of Journey's End, it gives it this very tonal, um, very kind of rich sound. Uh, and of course he provided the acoustic guitar and all that kind of stuff. Grave and Idol is a cool song, very odd song. Um, I'm not sure we ever really wrote a song quite like it, but certainly it lays out the general feeling of a journey. And this is going to be an odd record. Now, Dark Song, um, which I think is a beautiful song that we've done a couple of song times live. This was originally written by Fergal Flannery um, and myself, not with Primordial. It was for an acoustic project that we were doing and which we made a demo of um, that does exist somewhere in very, very poor quality. And um, it never really went anywhere, this sort of acoustic thing idea that myself and Fergal had. And we, he just sort of gave it to Primordial. And um, you can see his name in the thanks list. And what a weird decision to put this second on the record. So we open with this strange sort of gothic um, open, you know, song. And the second one is just completely acoustic. Um, and we never really did a song like that ever again with these layered vocals and um, these sort of pagan lyrics. Um, very evocative and, and I mean realistically a very very mature song to put after you've listened to the first album to consider two or three years later um, that this was what was going to be the second song to open our second album it's a very odd choice I think it's a very brave choice although we didn't think about that at the time but the song wasn't even really written it's got some strange tunings going on if you're trying to learn it on the guitar it's quite awkward I think um, and the poem by Amergen Glungal, you know, the, the song of Aaron, um, fit into this whole concept very beautifully. And we began to have some drones and some Bauron. Um, and it's, in my opinion, one of the greatest sort of primordial songs, but it was kind of completely by accident and not written by Kieran. And how strange is that? And it's how strange it is second. Autumn's Ablaze, a slightly different tuning. This song we still play. We just played it in our last shows. Um, and this became a sort of favourite song. This was, I guess, our, in our minds, a sort of centrepiece of the album. And this sort of opening strange dissonant riff that reminds me of sort of a, Voiv a Celtic Frost riff played by Voivod. At least that was ours kind of, I think it might have been our intention. But again, no choruses. It stops in the middle for this bass interlude, which has singing over it. Um, it's really hard to describe what style it is. I mean, there's elements of 80s goth in there. There's no doubt. There's elements of... Bathory, but it doesn't sound epic like as in epic metal that the band became. Um, as in fist in the air, you know, shout uh, across, uh, you know, an abyss to the old gods style epic. It's not that. It's kind of more personal. And the lyrics are quite... I think I was reading a lot of French existentialist writers, a bit of Camus, a bit of Sartre, stuff like this. The lyrics are not really um, external. They're quite internalised in a way... And they are, I'm not going to say sensitive soul type lyrics. They're not like that, but they're certainly um, a bit more poetic, a bit more romantic. And they belie 
the words written by a, a 20 year old I, I would imagine um, and so Autumn's Ablaze uh, became this sort of signature song as I said with the down tune and up t- it's a drop tuning I think it's C or something like this um, a really strange song with this oh, very low pitched vocal this is another thing you'll hear on Journey's End I hadn't found this aggressive singing yet this heavy vocal this um, that I'd taken from 70s and 80s rock um, you know a bit of Bad Company a bit of UFO a bit of War Blackie Lawless a bit of whatever um, <clears throat> I hadn't really applied that yet so Autumn's of Blazes it's a very sad melancholic kind of song Journey's End um, I think is a really heavy beautiful song which comes next and the, the, that opening four really makes sense I mean I think it's a very strong four opening four songs Journey's End is a huge big song about the loss of culture losing identity losing tradition um, and about how only the standing stones will be able to will be left to tell the the myths of time it's not really a romantic song about Celtic tradition but I think it's it's one of the first songs where I was kind of opening things up to sort of pan-Europeanism or a pantheistic um, idea that the syntax of all or the language of all of the old gods from whichever you may be from um, have this language that echoes through time that's attempting to speak to you on some level and how that was being lost um, so it's interesting because sometimes I talk to people from other bands who are going as long as Primordial and they say oh you know when I look back at the things that we're trying to say you know um back when we were young the you know the testosterone fueled aggression and satanic this that and the other um and sometimes people get to a little bit older and they wonder they have maybe have a couple of regrets about the things that they sang or they said and they go oh that doesn't really speak for me anymore but i can't really say that about primordial i'm very proud of the fact that in our own small way we tried to make some sort of a difference to sing about something which had cultural historical traditional resonance and journey's end is a perfect perfect example of that song and something i would be more than proud to to play to somebody now and go look here's what i spent doing my time when i was 20 years old or however old age i was 19 or 20 um and i think there's an uh, these four opening four songs have a great sort of maturity like i said they're lacking some aggression they're lacking some edge of the black metal um you know place where we came from but as a standalone album without those things it's very very interesting it's got a sort of rich tonality solitary mourner i'm not really sure how i feel about this anymore it's not really a song i don't really know what i was trying to do i think the the it means well solitary mourner but now um it could be done quite a lot better, but I don't regret it. I don't regret it. It's just quite odd. I'm not quite sure what I was trying to do. I think I was trying to make some sort of like sad, um, poetic, um, simplistic song that you would sing over the grave of someone. The idea was that it was part of some film, some windswept scene where some disheveled figure um, crows this over someone's grave. I think that's what I was trying to reach for, a solitary mourner. Whether I did or not, again, I'm not sure. It seems like I was quite obsessed um, with a sort of sense of the Victorian Gothic or a sense of the Gothic throughout this whole record. Um, And then we have Bitter Harvest. Bitter Harvest is one of the most difficult songs to look back on. Um, I think it's Kiron's riffs are huge and wide and the opening riff is immense. And then I have sort of kind of, I won't say ruined the song, but I've written this kind of quite 
nasty, vile, aggressive lyrics. Some people have said it's kind of misogynistic. It's not really meant to be. It's supposed to be inspired by, as I said, this uh, Sartre um, and, you know, this uh, Journey to the End of the Night. Who's that? Louis Ferdinand Céline. I think Céline was the, um, again, a French writer. He was the main influence for um, Bitter Harvest. And I suppose what it was, uh, was that sort of feeling of what will you age into as a young man? How will your um, open-minded, romantic view of the world be crushed by the dark forces that are no doubt going to turn you back into the carbon from which you, from whence you came? That was, a kind, I think, kind of the idea. But Kiron had anticipated some big, open, pagan anthem. And the lyrics and the music, I think, are the most... They're the most perfect example of lyrics that don't match the um, the music. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say I regret them. I think it's an interesting song. I think it's a dark kind of song. I don't think we ever played it live. Um, it's a very angry, sort of bitter song. I was trying to channel some of that um, antipathy, some of that sort of nihilism, some of that sort of pessimism. pessimism. De- nihilism is definitely word of those writers I was reading at the time. Um and it's 11 minutes. Again, it could be it could be two or three or four different songs. Maybe um, in another era we would have made this Journey's End would have been an album of um, a few more songs. But without a doubt, it's an interesting song. It's, it holds us back into a little bit areas of black metal, I think. On Astro Dernock, which we once played at um, the Houses of the Holy Festival as an instrumental for 10 or 15 minutes with loads of improvisation, it's an interesting song. It's a really nice piece of music. We wanted it's like we wanted it to be by like rolling waves rolling across um let's say a small um inlet or making your way to an island as dawn um you know breaks or whatever. And I think at the time um when I look back it was a very difficult record to make because we were stuck the four of us together in a small little room for about a month with no money really to eat anything properly with no money to do anything Bradford is a pretty miserable horrible place um no offense to you if you're from Bradford it was pretty grim and every you know the the surroundings were not really very inspiring I suppose um but Mags was incredible he was very inspiring and he sort of dragged these performances out of and I think it's one of the most standalone records in the whole primordial canon it really just sort of you know you can say burning season EP Spirit and Storm kind of stand together. But Journey's End really kind of is a very standalone album. Um, like I said, it lacks a kind of hard-toned edge, which maybe we return to in other records or maturity. But it has an incredible, um, I think, sort of romance to it. And I don't mean that as in a fake sense, but it has this kind of mythological romance or a kind of doomed romance feel to it. A doomed, yeah, a doomed romance. I suppose you could say that a gothic element is seeping across it a literary gothic inspiration um is quite evident in the lyrics and it's um it's got a sort of tragic beauty that now when i listen to i wonder what the fuck we were doing sometimes but um i think we're all very very proud of this record now of course then there was arguments about the cover we wanted a particular cover and the label were like what the fuck no way and in the end, it, uh, the cover was printed on the promos, but they changed it to something else at the last minute. Now, at the time, it really pissed me off. And I, it should have pissed me off uh, because of you know the nature of the label just deciding, no, you as the artist don't know um, what you're doing. But when I actually look back now, I think there was one particular cover which Stephen O'Malley made, which was a kind of druidic figure 
um, heading through some stones, standing stones, um, which was a kind of shrouded in a sort of element of mystery that probably would have fitted the record better. And maybe at the time I didn't quite realise how it sounded to other people. I had this picture of this old man that I wanted that as the cover. But it doesn't really make sense when you consider the age we were to have such a world-weary cover. It's a strange thing. Um, but certainly, maybe um, the decision of the record label to change it to this unusual cover with the trees, um, maybe that fitted better. Ultimately, I'm... Um, <laughs> willing to admit that maybe they were right at the time and probably I should have listened but you're 20 you think you know everything and they were saying like look this this image is kind of like commercial suicide and I suppose that was something that encapsulated so many of the bands back then the Ulvers and the Arcturuses and whoever else and this kind of a bit this idea that hey we know what we're fucking doing back off um etc and well it's an album that um is loved by quite a many people at the time and by many people who, who don't like the the sort of chorus-driven, more epic, more aggressive um, um, era that the band maybe moved into. They like this sort of slightly more rounded atmosphere, um, kind of um, autumn-toned... How can we say that? Journey's End feels like a sort of... It has these sepia tones to it. Um, it's got a sort of romantic edge to it. And I think that that appealed to a lot of people um, at the time. And I can see why. And listening back before I decided to, you know, ramble this off. Um, yeah, it really struck me how some of it is some really excellently produced by Mags. And how at the age of only whatever we were, 18, 19, 20, it's um, an incredibly mature record. But yet sort of filled with a sort of melancholic optimism. Anyway, Journey's End, album two, recorded in 1997 and I think came out um, in the first few months of 1998. Well, my friends, that's Agitators Anonymous and that's just a ramble across the album Journey's End. Go and listen to it right now. <laughs> 